0: This is a drink with a friend. I'm Tish Oxenrider,
1: and I'm Seth Haynes.
0: Seth, what are you drinking on this first chat back after several weeks away?
1: Well, Tish, as you know, as we have talked about, I um, have become one of those guys air quote those guys. I um, work out a lot these days, and I, um, I'm trying to have some very specific goals. And as a result of those goals, I have met with a trainer, a coach, and he has given me specific, uh, nutritional goals. And of those nutritional goals is to eat, wait for it, 210 grams of protein per day. That's a lot. Do you know how much that is? Have you ever tried to eat 210 grams of protein in a day?
0: It's probably more than I've ever eaten in a day. I don't know.
1: I think you should try it one day just for grins. I think, in fact, everyone here should try it for one day just to understand the sheer torture that I am putting myself through. Um, but as a result of that, I have to find creative ways to supplement protein. And one of those creative ways is to drink uh, protein powder. So I am drinking, uh, the, you know, the Sonic Ice. I've got to take some Sonic Ice, mm-hmm. which comes from an office machine. It's not actually from Sonic, but... Put it in a blender, uh, a little shaky shaker shaker bottle, Mm -hmm. pour some water in there, and two scoops of Orgain chocolate plant-based protein powder. Um, And not because I'm like super vegan or something, just because it's what Amber uses. And so that's what I use. I mean, when you're eating 210 grams of protein, you got to eat steak and red meat. Sorry, vegans. So anyway, that's what I'm drinking today. I am drinking a chocolate protein shake. And it tastes about as good as you'd imagine.
0: Well, that was going to be my next question. Does it actually taste good or does it taste healthy good?
1: Well, it does. It tastes healthy good. That's a good way to put it. I mean, I think of all of the protein powders. This is probably my favorite, the Orgain. And this is not sponsored by Orgain, so I can tell you what I actually think about it. Right. It doesn't have that sort of chalk Chalky feel Mm -hmm. to it, you know, Mm -hmm. it blends really well, and it's actually pretty good with just water and ice. So, nice, I do like it. I mean, if you're giving me the option of that or like chocolate milk, I mean, I'm choosing chocolate milk, you know,
0: right? Right, but
1: anyway, so that's what I'm drinking today. What are you drinking?
0: Well, I am back from almost a month away from Texas, and I am celebrating that by having opened up. An HEB brand sparkling water. Um, it was back funny. To the well. back, we back to the, to the well. well. It was funny. I don't know about a week and a half into our trip, I was heading out to the grocery store. You know, this is up in Oregon, and Finn, my youngest, asked me, "Hey, would you mind if when you get the sparkling water, if you get the HEB brand?" And I said, "Buddy, HEB is a Texas specific place," and Ooh. the look on his face was hilarious. And he even said after that, gosh, I feel badly for the people up here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he is a yep. true Texan by being a grocery store snob. So um, we're back to the well. I'm drinking passion fruit fizzy water from H-E-B, or as our mutual friend Haley Stewart's youngest daughter, Hildy, calls it, sparky water, which is Ooh. what we have adopted and now call it here in our house. So sparky you water.
1: Know- When you think about it, uh, Hildy, I'm assuming named after Saint Hildegard. She is. Yep. Passion fruit, which Saint Hildegard was full of passion. There you go. And calling it sparky water. I mean, she she was, I mean, she kind of saw the sparks of life. So all these things kind of converge in little Hildy's story. I like that a lot.
0: And I fully planned it. Yeah.
1: Do you know um what you should tell your kids is if they want to be fully Texan, then they have to drink H E B sparky water in a uh, oversized truck while wearing a 10 gallon hat and chewing tobacco?
0: <laughs> Sadly, that's more true than I care to admit. And you know, <laughs> it takes it takes for absolute ever to drive from Texas to Oregon. And frustratingly, an entire day of that is just getting out of Texas because we live in central Texas and it takes us I believe nine hours to get out of Texas via the panhandle. And so on this last day, as we were coming back in, it just felt so very Texas because of all the big trucks. And I hate that stereotype, but it is really true. And furthermore, we have noticed that red trucks, um, they're they're not safe drivers or they're not, they're kind of crazy on the road. So listener who drives a red truck, be careful out there.
1: Now slow down, Red Truck. Slow yeah. down.
0: Be calm. Come on.
1: <laughs> you know, we used to have, uh, you know, I'm an attorney, you know this, um, and and there was this old judge who told this story about the old hound dogs, coon dogs in Arkansas, and he would always, he was very fond of telling this story when there were New York attorneys down, and he would say, you know, there was this old coon dog named Old Red, and uh, whenever we'd open all the gates to let all the dogs go eat, they'd all go crazy after the dog bowl, and they'd you know, fight each other and rile over it. And, uh, old red though, he would go under the shade tree and he would just sit and wait for all the other dogs to be finished. And then he'd go over to the bowl and there's plenty left and old red would eat his fill. And that's kind of what I want to say to the red truck driver. <laughs> go sit under the shade tree just for a little bit. Old red. I love
0: it. Just chill. I out. love it. That's good. That's really good. Now As I mentioned, I was just gone for almost a month up in the Northwest. You guys were gone too, albeit not as long. You guys went to the Gulf. How was your trip?
1: Oh, so good. I, You know, to be really honest, beach, nah, I don't really, it's not my thing. Um, I do like the idea of sitting on a beach and reading, but I'm also very pale skinned. Um, in fact, when you do my Ancestry.com, uh, you know, uh, DNA test, which my dear friend uh, Tasha Morris Morrison of Be the Bridge told me I should do. She said we should all know our eth- ethnic profiles, um, even if you're a whitey white guy like I am. Um, so at her behest, I did. And I found out that my entire family comes from probably about 30 square kilometers in the UK. I have... Zero. uh, Well, that's not true. I have some, you know, Scandinavian ancestry. Um, In fact, I'm so white that I probably should change my middle name to white privilege to to privilege. Um, So uh, the, the the idea of sitting on a beach where the UV rays can penetrate SPF 1000 and scorch me to lobster is not appealing. Um, but you know what, this time we didn't really do a whole lot of beach sitting, which was really great. I did a lot of fishing with my kids in the Bay, um, which was a whole lot of fun. We read a lot, we hung out a lot. Um, but we did most of our beaching in the morning and in the late evenings. And then, you know, aside from that, we just kind of hung out inside or went fishing under trees and it was really nice. It was the first time that I thought, oh. I kind of like this.
0: Okay. I have a dumb question. Whenever you go fishing on vacation, do you eat the fish?
1: Oh, depends on what you catch, but on 100,000 million percent. Okay. So we found this little spot on the bay where the speckled trout run in. So they come in from the ocean and they kind of cruise this bay looking for food. And there are really two times a day that you can just like get into them all day long. And it's just on the side of the road. So – you know, Titus who just turned 10 and Isaac and I can sit there and just hang out and catch fish for hours and they're massive speckled trout. And so the last day we were there, we had fish tacos with trout that we caught speckled trout that we caught out of the bay. So yes, it's, we, we do keep our fish. We do eat our fish. Again, see my previous comment regarding protein
0: Right, <laughs> right, and it comes full circle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's cool. I wasn't sure how one handled that while one was not at home with a freezer of sorts. So
1: one gets creative. Tish. One does very, very yeah. creative.
0: Nice. So nice. yeah, it was a good trip. It was a good. good. Trip, but I'm glad You're to be so back, bad.
1: and I'm glad to be back here with you.
0: Yeah, I am too. There was something special about a trip where, on our way back, we felt like it was time to come back. And I know you, you know what I mean because. We've all had that experience of when you go somewhere and you feel like, well, I barely scratched the surface. I almost felt like I it was just starting to come down from the stress of life when yep. I had to turn around and come home. Yep. And it wasn't a trip like that. I think it was long enough to feel restful, but not so long that we got restless. And so, yeah, yeah it was really good to come back and get back to a routine. And so it's not so much that I'm ready for <laughs> school to start as a teacher. It's only a few weeks away. For me, and it's inevitable. It's okay. I'm, you know, I can't complain. But it's enough to where it felt really good to wake up early and get to working on some planning and some writing and some stuff. You know, Um, even house cleaning. And so that to me is a sign of a really good trip. So we had a great time as well. It was weird to be up in the northwest when it was so hot. They're having a freakishly warm summer. As People probably heard from the national news, maybe even an in international news at the start of the summer. And while it's not as blistering hot as it was then, you know, they had that weird what did, they called it, some dome, like some kind of heat dome where Portland was like 116 degrees. It's it. it Mm-hmm. didn't stay like that, but it was just hotter than normal. And so it was strange as a Texan to leave here, which we are having a cooler than normal summer. It's not cool, but it's just cooler to go up there and for it to only be a few degrees cooler. And the AC is not everywhere like it is here, uh, which is usually yeah. an asset, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, when it was so hot. So we had some pretty warm nights of sleeping. We camped for a good chunk of it because that's what we do. We oxen mm-hmm. um, And so it got a little chilly. Uh, just a few nights as opposed to every night, which is what we were used to. But that's okay. It was still a great trip. Great. Food.
1: Well, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. But I am sorry for all the listeners in the Northwest Pacific Northwest about yeah. your, your heat. And it's like a, it's a bad deal, man. You move up there for the weather. And then to get that it's like
0: mm-hmm.
1: nature giving you a middle finger, man.
0: It is. And I think it's even harder when you're just not used to it. Like the way we Texans dealt with the crazy winter earlier this year, a lot of them, you know, 95 degrees for us here just feels like a regular Tuesday, but there it's a big deal. And so when you're not used to it, I had my sister-in-law actually said she got dizzy just gardening and couldn't figure out what was going on. And she had to come back in the house and like lay on the floor and then she realized, oh, it's hot, and mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah, you, you know your your environment. That's right. So
1: I know, I know. A lot of times, whenever we go on vacation, I don't know if it's this way for you, but when I am on vacation, I tend to write mo- more poetry. Um, I tend to read more things. I tend to think more deeply um, about things because I have time. It's like I carve out. The time to sit and think and, you know, I don't know, strategize and plot and create. Do you find that uh, is true in your life? Like, what were you thinking about on this trip?
0: Yes, it's for sure a true thing in my life. Two years ago in 2019, I took a full-on sabbatical for the first time. I've talked about it before, so I won't rehash, but I actually completely turned off my phone and my laptop and I didn't open them for a month. This time... I didn't exactly do that. I didn't make any promises that I would like never post on social media or read anything. But I also gave myself full, full permission to not care when iota about it. And so it was a nice mix of, you know, I could check it if I wanted to, but no big deal if yeah. I went days. And I did. I only posted once at the beginning. And then I realized I don't really care about keeping people yeah. up to date yeah. with my vacation because they don't need to know. And it right. doesn't make my trip more enjoyable to post. And so I say all that to answer your question in that it's remarkable to me whenever you take away that part of um, the pie that you consume in a day, you have a bigger slice for other things such as long form. And yeah. so, yes, I I did much more, re, you know, deeper reading, long form reading. I not only finally read some long articles that I had been saving for like someday, but I read a few books and it was great. And I'm going to talk about the book I read later when we get into like the the stuff that's making our life better, because I do want to unpack it. And I know you love this book. So um, oh boy. Oh boy. I know, yeah, be can, excited.
1: Can we just cut to that? No, I'm just kidding. Let's go, let's
0: keep talking. <laughs> but it was really nice being able to, book in my days with long form thinking. So yeah. it was, it's a subtle difference of waking up for my day versus to my day, I think maybe is the way I mm-hmm. can put that. Yeah. Like I woke up still pretty early because I'm in my forties and I do that, <laughs> but, uh, for like reading for an hour, if I wanted to, yeah. you know, yeah. and then ending my day like that, it was lovely being able to read with the little lantern in our pop-up trailer while the kids were sleeping next to me and just read as late as I wanted because it's okay. I don't have work the next day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's one of my favorite things about travel is being able to think more deeply and leisurely and, and also probably with that converse more deeply and leisurely, yeah. you know, it's a, like yeah. I mentioned, it's a really long drive. And so we get to having some good conversations in that car yeah. on the way and back. Yeah. Yeah. So something I was actually thinking about on this trip and I've thought about before is this concept that is not brand new, but is something perhaps we can unpack a little bit here because I think it's related to the things we'd like to talk about on a drink with a friend, which is the sacramentality of all things. And that's the concept of Dunbar's number. Have you heard of that before?
1: Um, Only in your text message to me about... Dunbar's number, but it sounds really intriguing to me. I'm not a numbers guy. It was my worst section of the ACT had to do with numbers.
0: Me too. Um, I will not get into the science of it because I don't really care, honestly, and I don't think our listeners would care that much. But um, I first heard about this concept yet again from Hildy's mother, aka Haley Stewart, friend of the show. She told me a few years ago about this concept, which is basically from an anthropologist named Robin Dunbar in the 1990s. And he hypothesized basically that humans can have about a max of 150 people in their social sphere. And he did this from studying primates. And I can link to the article if people really want to get into it. It's actually from him and from uh, Dr. Dunbar. But I'm not going to get into it. What he's basically saying is that humans seem to have this natural innate um, in our DNA natural limit to the number of meaningful relationships we can have. Mm. And on top of that, these relationships are layered. Most people thrive, actually, with only about five people in their closest layer. And then Mm -hmm. the next, so concentric circles and the next layer holds about 10 people, a little bit lower than our closest relationships, but still fairly close. So perhaps maybe like extended family or really close friends. And then after that, the layers go, um, you know, to 15 and 50 and then finally 100 people for a total of 150 people. And he is saying this in conjunction with the idea, not only that primates seem to function this way as well, but so do most of human civilization history, mm. we tend to up until the recent modern era, we've all lived in really small villages. Or if we lived in cities, we still had a really small social sphere. You know, we didn't yeah. know that many people. So I've been thinking about that as we traveled, because after a year of COVID, year plus of COVID, um, I'm an introvert, but I was still itching to see people. And yet, at it didn't take me long <laughs> to get my my fill. Where I was yeah. like, I I don't want to see people as much as I thought I did, and the reason yeah. is because I already saw people. So I don't know. Have you ever had this experience before, where you just feel like there's this innate, hardwired max that you have in your life?
1: Yes, yes, and in fact, I think um, you know I, I think about this more in terms of business uh, terms because I I feel like I do a pretty good job. I did not earlier on, and I did not in my thirties do a good job of, of sort of limiting that sphere. But as I've gotten older um, and as I've come into touch more and more with my innate introversion um, I think I do a pretty good job of sort of limiting my sphere. I mean, we've always, you know, probably for the last five or six years, we, you know, we have, uh, we're we're pretty close with the same three other couples, you know, Mm -hmm. like we, we keep the same sort of social circle, Um, for the most part, even the extended social circle, the people that we love, but just, we don't get to see as much. Um, we're not looking to expand that as terrible as that sounds, but, but yeah, I mean, I think we, we have sort of the same core group of friends that we've had really for the last five to 10 years, um, Where I find it to be a real challenge for me is in uh, the world of business where you're sort of always expected to be growing, expanding, scaling, um, you know, all those words that we're so fond of using. um, Or as you Austinites say, and the Silicon Valley people say, crushing it, which generally means uh, amassing contacts and influences and all those things. Like it can be really difficult because... Um, you can spread yourself so thin with your with your contacts, with your um, commitments that you really can't do what you're supposed to do well and deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that stress and pressure, you know, almost on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think in, in our work, if we consider our um, yours and my local work, you know, you as an attorney, me as a teacher, we already have people that we absolutely have to stay connected with, be it our our coworkers, our bosses, in my case, my students, uh, your clients. These are just given they have to be part of our 150 right. people. And so yeah. you might hear that number and think, oh, that's plenty. But really, it starts adding up when you start considering uh, closest friends, family, extended family, neighbors. Uh, maybe interactions with people that you genuinely care about, the barista at the coffee shop, your mail carrier, um, cashiers and store owners. Not saying you have to know them deeply. They can be in your outer circle, but that's still part of your 150. And things like that just makes me wonder what happens when we then prioritize relationships found only through the screen. Now, I don't mean you can't make friends through the screen. I have. I mean, I think you and Amber count as some of them. You know, where you meet people via the internet first. But yeah. whenever I'm talking about those people, that there's really no way that you will ever meet them, and they will remain a peripheral avatar, yeah. even if you do like them as a person. Um, whenever we dedicate too much of our energy, our, our relational energy to them, um, I don't know. Some someone in that 150 circle has to fall away and perhaps it's not someone you want to you know
1: yeah yeah Yeah. or or at least the quality of those relationships suffer you know what this makes me think of um the little town that our merry band of compatriots stayed in in italy Mm -hmm. you remember that little that little village
0: castle muzio
1: yeah how many people do you think lived there
0: oh my gosh it was tiny it was so tiny um, I don't know. I mean, I'm the worst at guessing, but it was I mean, really, really small. You couldn't fit cars in the town, remember? They had a parking right. lot, right? For the town,
1: right? Yeah, right. And the streets yeah. were pretty much just for little boys on their bikes, right? But, right. but I mean, what was that? Maybe 150 people. Like, yeah. I just think about how connected that community was and how they kept sending it. like, oh, you got to go eat at this person's restaurant, which coincidentally was the only restaurant, or you have to go learn to paint from this person who coincidentally was the only painter in the area. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was just such a, I mean, quaint, sure. But there was something that was really almost manageable about it, Mm -hmm. about thinking through like, Oh man, if this were my village, this would be incredible. You'd know everybody, you'd know when somebody needs help, you'd know where to get help, you'd know where to go um and so you know it would be interesting to know if if that's kind of the way people organize themselves sort of naturally um yeah. you know you, you the churches there in Castle Castle and other places i mean they they probably held about 150 people mm-hmm. um despite the ornate nature of them and how beautiful they were and, but but those little villages that we went to they seemed to sort of exist for those those smaller pockets of people. And then of course there were bigger towns just like anywhere. But um but it just makes me wonder if that's like an organizing principle that humans just kind of innately live into. I mean have yeah. you looked at that? Is that part of Dunbar's number?
0: I think that's what he's saying is that anthropologically speaking and historically speaking, this is how we have organized ourselves for most of human history. You know, villages and and small little enclaves as opposed to um kind of just how we do it now. And I would even argue that I I remember talking many years ago with Kristen Kill, who used to live in Manhattan. And she mentioned that one of the things she loves about living in a big city like New York is that it actually has a small town essence, because most of what you do on a daily basis is just within a few block radius. And it's all there. So like your bodega on the corner is, you know, a few feet away from your apartment and she said, you know, the bodega owner will call me to let me know my son's about to buy 10 Kit Kats is that really what you know, he's supposed to be doing because he knows her and and so it's got the small town feel because it's a neighborhood. It's like a it's a micro town within this huge city. And so I wonder if in tw- you know, the 21st century in North America where most of us live somewhere in between a tiny town, and a mega city, if that's why there's just a little bit of this malaise about about our day to day life, like in our immediate sphere where we live, you know, it's like both we have too many people, we have more than 150 people. And yet it's not the 150 we actually want, which is our neighbors, you know, a lot of people that live in the suburbs, possibly don't even know who they live around. And it, it, to me is one of the huge appeals to living where we live, which is in a really walkable, small historic town, because I want to know the people I rub shoulders with. That. Like I yeah. genuinely want to know who they are, even if they're not like my chosen, you know, fa- quote "favorite people, I want to know who they yeah. are. There is something deeply rewarding. It almost feels like in my soul that I can't describe that feels right and good when yeah. it's like that, kind of like yeah. the people in Italy.
1: Yeah. I wonder too, as I think about this principle and expand it out into the, I wonder ifs and um, the, there's no way we can answer these questions on the show questions. I wonder if there's kind of a natural inclination towards that 150, even on social media. In other Mm -hmm. words, you know, when I think about my Twitter usage or my Instagram usage, and I bet I don't interact. I mean, you know, other than be like, Hey, thanks. I, I wonder if I interact with 150 people or less mm-hmm. across all platforms. I'm not saying like 150 people on Twitter, hundred people, 150 people on Instagram. I wonder if I were to go and look at my actual interactions, people that I, you know, chat with um, DM from time to time, like their stuff. They like my stuff. I wonder if that's 150 because it, it like, even as we're talking about this, I'm thinking like, I think even in the virtual world, I sort of naturally am inclined to limit my interactions. Um, and I can't really tell you why it's a terrible brand building strategy. Um, but it's kind of, it kind of feels natural to say like, Oh, I don't really know you. Thanks for liking my stuff. But, Mm -hmm. but I don't really know like the the interaction, the quality of the interaction is just not the same. And then there've been uh, great friends that I've made over the years vis-a-vis social media. Mm -hmm. Um, For whatever reason, but it does seem like it it sort of caps out. at sort of that knowable 150-ish kind of people. Is that weird?
0: It's not weird. And I think you hit on exactly why it's not weird, because you said it's terrible for brand building and i think the reason it feels weird is because social media inherently is structured to not reflect dunbar's number it it sends us this message yeah. that we're supposed to be as connected as possible in order to be thriving healthy humans in 2021 and we're just our evolution does not agree with yeah. that we yeah. reject it in our bones and and so it is terrible for brand building because we're not brands we're people right yeah. and yeah. so you know maybe a company you know, who has several people on staff that can operate the Instagram account, can manage it because they are using a different part of their brain. It's work and they're not feeling this like this is part of my my 150. This is just a, a task to check off on my work list. Um, but when it comes to our own human interaction, I think that's why, you know, you, you told me a while ago about the, the mute feature on Instagram, I believe, yes. where you can still follow people, but you know, if they're just using the tool in a way that's different than you want, you can mute them and they won't show up in your feed, but it's, it's not anything against them. It's just not for you.
1: Yeah. Totally. And to me that
0: helps. And the more I do that, the more Instagram shows me like the same 20 people I, I even want to keep up with. And it's, it's so much better. It's so yeah, brilliant. I think that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, a quick break from our chat to tell you about a little tool I've been using the past year or so that has been a game changer for me. And I think you'll like it too. It's called Hallow. And it's a prayer and meditation app that is chock full of great resources to help me pray better and meditate more deeply. It has audio guided ancient prayers, Bible readings, follow along guides for things like Lectio Divina, examine, night prayer, some seasonal music, optional background, ambient noise and more. And the thing is, it's really high quality. I know sometimes stuff like this is either poorly produced or kind of cheesy. And hallow is neither of those things. And I have a super high kind of snobbish standard in that department, believe me. So some of what's on hallow is intentionally really short, which is nice when we're talking a minute long for those quick breaks you need in the middle of a workday. Some of it is for when you can't sleep and you need to quiet your mind. Some of it is great for while you're sitting in traffic or going on a walk. And you can also create customized routines, which is so helpful for cultivating those habits we all want. So right now in my routine on Hallow, I've got a morning time of learning about and praying along with the saint of the day, according to the church calendar. And then in the evening, a routine of examine for daily reflection. Both of these things take me about 10 minutes. And yet I'm telling you, these little practices have made such a big difference in my life. They've also got things like gospel readings from Jonathan Rumi, the actor who plays Jesus in the Chosen series, homilies from Bishop Robert Barron and Father Mike Schmitz, who are two of my favorites. And Hallow, like I said, it has a really slick interface. It's super easy to use, and they're always adding more features and resources without making it overwhelming. I first started Hallow back with a 30-day trial, and I loved it so much, I not only upgraded to an annual subscription, I went with a family plan so that my entire household can use it too. It's especially great for teens who struggle with anxiety. So if you're looking for a meditation resource, but you want it faith-based, Hallow is the way to go. Now, yes, they're Catholic, which I personally love as a brand new convert, but I was using Hallow as a Protestant, and I loved it just as much. In fact, it was a simple, encouraging way to, quote, try out some beloved Catholic ancient practices without worry of me not knowing what the heck I was doing. You don't have to be Catholic to find Hallow incredibly life-giving. And I am so thrilled to tell you that they're giving you guys the drink with a friend listeners, the opportunity to try them out with a 30 day trial as well. So you go to hallow.com slash drinks. That's H A L L O W.com slash drinks. And you can test drive the complete version of hallow for free for 30 days after that, you can go with the free version, which still has some great stuff on it. But there's a chance you'll be like me and want to keep the full version because it's so dadgum useful and life giving. So again, that's hallo.com slash drinks for a free 30 day trial. Okay, back to our chat.
1: Yeah, and you know it makes me think too. I'm like, as we're talking about this, um, and we're talking about how we've been convinced that personal brand building one is a necessity, which I disagree with, but two um, that it can be done through social media. I'm I'm reminded of a podcast that I had the privilege to join. Um, it's a friend of mine. His name is Clay Newcomb. He runs a hunting podcast, but it's not really a hunting podcast. It's like a podcast about just storytelling about the outdoor lifestyle. It's a brilliant podcast. Hmm. Um, it's called Bear Grease. And he just released an episode on uh, Daniel Boone. Hmm. And I knew very little about Daniel Boone. So I was not on the podcast to talk about Daniel Boone, but I was on the podcast to talk about brand building, which is kind of one of the things that that I do and we were talking through archetypal brand building and and building a brand around um sort of a character type. As a literature professor, you probably geek out on this stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are, you know, 12 great archetypes and nine great stories. And 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 you know Daniel Boone existed within a particular story at a particular time as a particular archetype. And that's why we all know who he is. But even as he was talking about Daniel Boone, quote unquote, as a brand, I mean it was very clear that his sphere of influence was very, very limited, extremely limited. Um, He was very Quaker influenced, so he spent a lot of time in the wilderness. He spent a lot of time with Native Americans, uh, both in good context and bad context, certainly. Um, But his his sphere of influence was very limited, and yet because of the depth of his life and the quality of his skill, um, even though his sphere of influence would have been 150 people or less that certainly um his myth his brand has exploded because he was true he lived into who he was authentically and people knew that and loved that and so i wonder too if there's not a way to say you know maybe the more important thing long term is to live authentically with deep quality with deep skill um, in a very sacramental way with 150 people. And, and maybe at the end of the day, that's actually better brand building, uh, for lack of a better phrase, uh-huh. um, than gathering 10,000 followers on Twitter.
0: I completely agree. You know, it, it to me, it's, it sounds exactly like that idea that, came, that ran around the internet around 2009, the 1,000 true fans. Have you heard yeah. that one? Yeah. Yes. It, oh, yeah. It feels like that, where... You know, you don't necessarily need all the followers, you just need the right ones who care about your work and will support whatever you do. And you know, this isn't about that. So I don't want to get into that too much. But that's one of the reasons I love Substack so much, as opposed to, you know, Twitter, or Instagram, really, because I can... Connect with the people I genuinely want to connect with because they genuinely want to connect with me, you know, and we can talk about the things we want to talk about. And um, yeah, so I think, I think it's more than just good business. I think it's good business because it's actually how we're made. It's in our bones. Um, I don't. Yeah. So I, I think there's something spot on about, about that. And that sounds like – I think you've told me about that podcast. So I'm going to put it in the show notes because I like a good storytelling podcast.
1: i tell you what. He does it well. He does it well. <laughs> and he's not out there trying to get a million fans, just a thousand true ones. And I think That's he's doing a pretty good job.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So my takeaway as we wrap this up for um, the concept of Dunbar's number post-vacation and I'm curious if any listeners resonate with this. For me personally, it's just a reminder to connect in person with my friends or with a friend around weekly. You know, like it doesn't need to be a major dinner party. It's just grabbing coffee with a friend roughly once a week. Now, I know COVID numbers are bouncing all over the place, so we have to be smart. <laughs> and That's annoying. But, uh, you know, an hour with a friend Over a drink is worth it because it just keeps things in perspective. Um, Prioritize my absolute inner circle, which, if he really means five to six people, that means my family. You know, there's Mm -hmm. no other way to do it. Um, That's where the numbers are. So, you know, do what I can to make sure we still get the family time we need as frequently as possible. Um, For me, it also means. Kyle and I have been convicted about the idea of keeping our parish as local as possible. Yeah. You know, our, our where we go to mass on 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 the weekend needs to be in our hood if we can help it. So yeah. to me, that, that means th- that's just a whole other thing to unpack that we could talk about someday. And then the last thing for me is just there's real truth to taking regular screen breaks. And even though yeah. that might not seem connected to Dunbar's number, I think it is because um, it just keeps things in the right place. Like it keeps tech... Yeah where it should be and not the primary way I, I tap into those 150 people. It's, it's a peripheral thing. So for me that might look like, you know, one day off a week of not touching the screen or, or whatever it is, you know, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but it, it means regular screen breaks.
1: Yeah. I love that. And as I think about it, I think, you know, I'm leaving the the drink with my friend Tish today, thinking through, like what is the purpose of individual brand building and is it even really possible in the modern context and it, should it be a thing that we're pursuing or is it actually doing something negative uh negatively to us um anthropologically is it mm-hmm. jacking us up somehow to think that I'm important enough to build 10,000 followers on any social media platform when the truth is I can only relate to 150 total yeah um so yeah, I think it's a great. I think this is a great question, a great thing to keep thinking through mm-hmm. as we keep having drinks with friends. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think this is a topic to continually impact because it's not going away. You know, yep, our right. our culture is still going to be telling us to grow more and more and more, and our bones are going to be telling us, "Wait, am I supposed to?" So yeah, that's not that's going right. away. Yeah.
1: Well, Tish, tell me this then: what is one thing that you are reading, listening to, watching? Um, that is bringing more truth, beauty, or goodness to your life. And don't try to get away from telling us about the book that you read on vacation, because now my curiosity is piqued.
0: Well, it is not a brand new book. It's a book that's been on my TBR list forever. And you just read it too. So um, I finally read Brideshead Revisited by oh. Ewan Wagen. Oh my goodness. What a fantastic book to read on vacation. Um, and what a wild ride that was. I was yes. not expecting yes what it ended up being and it was so good and the ending made my head spin and it wouldn't let me go for days and days and I just loved it it was so well done and so unexpected and uh yeah he was just a master with words it was Mm -hmm. I loved entire sentences in that book so
1: yeah I actually have chills right now just talking about it um did you did you did you geek out as much as i did about the personification of the storm on the ship i i i go back and read those passages still
0: yeah that section i i, I did not see Great. that coming in oh my gosh it was so well done it was yeah. so good i yeah and I, I love it when writers create characters that I'm rooting for, even if they're somewhat terrible. And I say that because I we all want flawed heroes. We all yeah. like that's kind of in our, our soul. And that's why we love books that um, make the protagonist have a certain depth and dimension and why the ones yeah. that make them perfect don't really last. Um, because, you know, Sebastian and Charles and, And, um, Julia, they were all terrible in some ways and also delightfully relatable in many other ways. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it. It So good. You know,
1: that, that, that's the thing about that book that I think is so brilliant when I, you know, you saying that makes me think of it. There's not a single character that I can remember in that book right now that I did not root for. Mm -hmm. Not a single one. And that's really rare in a book.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's a great way to put it. And I think it's an interesting juxtaposition to a book like The Great Gatsby, because yes. in that book, I root for no one. Like, they're right. all, I, I want them all to just go away and go to therapy. In this right. book, they, there was hope, even in the midst of, I mean, it was the same time period too, even in the midst of their um, yeah. drunken stupors, even that guy that uh, Sebastian lived with in Morocco, yeah, that was, totally. I was rooting even for him. Like, come on, right. dude, you got this. <laughs> pull
1: it out, pull it out, yeah. man, you can do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great way to put it. So um, highly, highly recommended. Um, Everyone needs to read that book. So
1: yeah. Agreed. I totally agree. Very cool. All
0: right. So what are you reading, watching or listening to that's adding more beauty, goodness or truth to your life? Well,
1: I started this over my own vacation and I've gotten a little bit hijacked with some work reading, Um, which my work reading, I might as well tell you, i It's a book that I read a long time ago, and I cashed it out again. Um, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. It's actually a really good book for any of you guys who are out there looking for a business book if you haven't read it. Um, And I think that there's some sacramental truth in there, but we'll Mm -hmm. leave that for another episode. I started a novel, and I'm about halfway through it, called The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. Hmm. And it's a story about a Jesuit who visits a, a an alien race um, and comes back and is very discombobulated. It's a story of doubt. Huh. Um, it's less Vonnegut than I would want and a little bit more beach reader than I would be treaty than I would mm-hmm. prefer. Yeah. Um, but yet it's really intriguing and interesting. A friend gave it to me and I'm I actually really love it, and I think it's it's wrestling with some really good, hmm. um, g- good issues and tensions around the idea of uh, doubt and power, um, particularly power, the abuse of power, um, and sometimes it, it doesn't paint church in a particularly great light. But still, there are those characters that come from within the power structure. Um, that fully embody the sacramental beauty of what it means to have sacrificial love. And that's mm-hmm. really, really um, good to see in the book. So it, I'm really enjoying it so far. The truth is with all the work reading that I have to do over the next month, it's probably going to take me two months to finish, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, I get it. I get it. As a school year starts, I'm going to be swamped with other people's uh, yeah, choices of reading material for me, including my own self-inflicted as a teacher. Um is this a new book, The Sparrow?
1: No, it's. Uh, I can't remember when it came out, but it's okay. it's an older an older book. Oh, I'm okay. looking at it now. 1996, so the year I
0: graduated from high school. Got it. Okay, so not like super old, but definitely not new.
1: I mean, oh. the uh, millennial listener here would that's say, "Come on, that's super old."
0: I know. I forget that We're in my old. mind. It's if I if I is. can like if I can place where I was in a year that you name, then it doesn't feel old. But I know that's, that's yeah. dumb. But it's you true. know, there
1: are some listeners here who are like, I can place where I was. I was a thought in my right. parents' mind.
0: Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. my I was actually just having this conversation with my middle kid who has no concept of time. He will ask, I mean, he's 13 and he will still ask about like some movie that's black and white. Were you alive when this came out? And it's just like, yeah, you don't Rude. understand. And that's I, I know. And it's okay. It's okay. Because I did the same thing. I did the sure. same thing. Anyway. We all do. We all do. All right. Well, it was good to get back to this. And um yes. as we wrap this up, I am excited to get the fall season started. Um, so I'm grateful to have people listening in and grateful for this time. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com. If you like the show and what we're doing here, you can help keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks. A lot of you are doing that these days, and I'm very, very grateful for that Uh, because the show is free for you to listen to, but it's not free for us to make. So at the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint, you can play a little part. That's actually not so little. Find the link to do this in the show notes of this episode or at a drink with a friend.com. And thank you very much in advance for your partnership. Also, a reminder to check out Hallow free for 30 days at Hallow.com slash drinks. They are my current go to resource for excellent meditation and prayer, and I think you'll love it as well. So, again, that's Hallow.com slash drinks, or find the link in the show notes. You can find me and how to connect with me, especially via my newsletter at tishoxenrider.com. Seth, where can people find you?
1: They can find me at sethhaines.com. I highly suggest going to sethaines.substack.com. And while you're at it, you might as well follow me on Instagram at Seth Haines. I mean, just do
0: all the things do all the things. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. Caroline Tassell is our transcriber and assistant extraordinaire. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth Haynes, and we will be back here with you again. Thank you for listening.